Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. I want to remind us of what the big deal is about this topic. So now you've been through uh, week one with me and week two with Jarrett back in June. And we'll have one more of these on August 2nd before everything kicks back off for fall uh, a few weeks after that. But what's the big deal? Why, why worry about someone taking a verse out of context or interpreting a, vo- a verse out of context? What is, what's the big deal? Isn't it still the Word of God? Isn't a verse, no matter how it's applied or how it's interpreted, aren't those words, holy words that are inspired by God and can't they be used in multiple circumstances? Well, uh, I want you to remember this, and this was in our introductory session two sessions ago, so if it, I didn't provide space for this, but just write it anywhere you want to if you don't have it yet. The meaning of the text is the text. The meaning of the text is the text. In other words, if we read the words of Scripture and then misinterpret them or misapply them, then we're not understanding Scripture correctly. Uh, if we don't understand the words and interpret the words or the phrase or the meaning of the text appropriately, then what we're deciphering is not the word of God. We've made a mistake, and we are inserting our own opinions or a false teaching or something else in its place. Okay, that's why we need the Spirit's help to, to understand the Scripture as we read through that we are free from error, and we understand what we're reading, and, and God gives us understanding in all those things. The meaning of the text is the text and, of course, remember this, thing, this one, twisting scripture is satanic. I get that from um, the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. And the three times that Jesus is tempted by Satan, Satan all three times uses scripture to tempt Jesus. But Satan uses the scripture in an inappropriate way that is not interpreting the scripture correctly. And Jesus confronts him in his twisting of scripture and adjusts his, his thinking on it. Thus it is written, thus says the Lord. Uh, Jesus corrects his understanding of that three different times. So the meaning of the text is the text, and if we twist the text or misunderstand the text, what we're reading is no longer Scripture. It's no longer the words of God. So it is important to understand the meaning of the text rightly in context, understanding what God intended then and what it means for us now. So I'm going I'm to zoom through this because this was all week number one. Questions to ask, where to start. Uh, number one, who's the author? Who wrote it? Who is the audience? Who were the original hearers? What is the genre that we're reading? What type of literature is it? Uh, poetry or gospel or historical narrative or uh, any of the others that we can find in Scripture. What is the setting? So what is going on at the time of the writing of Scripture, when Paul wrote or when John wrote or when Matthew wrote? What is the setting that might be being addressed in the text? Um, next, what are the themes? What are the big picture themes in the text that we're reading that, that surround maybe a particular verse? 
that might inform how we interpret that verse. Then we come to interpretation. And interpretation is not what does it mean to me. Okay, that's uh, the, the age-old, terrible Bible study question. What does it mean to me? Uh, scripture is not meant to be interpreted by just you for you. Scripture has one meaning. And we start with this. What did it mean then? At the time of the writing, with all the clues added in, what did it mean then? Then we get to what we call application. That's what can we take away? Okay, so we don't need to move directly toward application. What does it mean for me? We need to first ask, what did it mean then? What does the verse mean? And then we can ask, what can we take away from it? So interpret it in context first, and then move on to application. So there is one interpretation of Scripture, what it means. We can be wrong about our interpretation, and for sure there are different interpretations between a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or whatever. There are different interpretations, but someone is right and someone is wrong. There is one interpretation. The application is where it blossoms out into a million different things that we might be able to take away from that meaning and then practice or put into uh, obedience to that passage. And we're going to do that with each of our three passages tonight, as we have been doing so far. So let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, and uh, let's read this verse, and then we're going to put it in context and try to decipher the meaning. Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, I want to really hone in on the last part, which is often quoted, there is no male or female. And let's ask the question, how is this verse often used? Well, I think maybe in the last 10 to 20 years, we've seen this verse misused by some who are trying to twist Scripture to accommodate to what we call the sexual revolution or the gender revolution. So whether we're dealing with same-sex uh, behavior or LGBTQ plus issues or the new transgender movement, all these things we're dealing with, people who try to appeal to Scripture to support their claims or to say Jesus was okay with this or the Bible is okay with this, uh, and churches who unfortunately have tried to, to move along with the culture on those issues might point to that text and say, well, the Bible says in Christ there's neither male nor female. Another way this has been used or misused is in churches who try to disregard God's uh, plan for genders within the home and within the church. Uh, so maybe in terms of recent conversations on female pastors or female ministers within the church or female preachers and teachers within the church. And so someone might point to this text, as they often do, and say, well, the Bible says in Christ there is neither male nor female. So, you know, what are you going to do with that? So let's look first at some of those context clues, put it together, and see where Paul is going, what the argument actually is. The author, of course, is the Apostle Paul. His audience at, at this moment is the Galatian church, Galatian Christians. And the genre is epistle or letter. He's writing a letter to the church at Galatia addressing different issues. Paul to the church at Galatia writing a letter or an epistle. 
Let's observe a little bit of the setting then. Uh, Many scholars agree that this was written by Paul to the Galatians uh, maybe around the year A.D. 48. And there's a lot of historical context clues that go into figuring out that date because if you know the book of Acts, there's this thing called the Jerusalem Council which deals with issues about circumcision and the Old Testament laws and the dietary restrictions of the Old Covenant. And there's a question in the early church in Acts about whether Gentiles coming into the faith have to observe those things. So if a Gentile comes to faith in Christ, should they be circumcised? Do they have to observe the Old Covenant laws, dietary restrictions, and so on? And the Jerusalem Council made a decision that, no, they are not under those burdens, except for these few, and that was just to keep offense out of the church. Galatians is about some of those very issues, mainly the issue of circumcision and these Judaizing Christians who have come into the church trying to tell Gentile believers, unless they're circumcised, they really don't belong to the covenant family of God. And so if you put those things together, and we know that the Jerusalem Council was around A.D. 48 or 49, we can look at Paul's ministry and say he must have been writing this before the Jerusalem Council or else he would have referenced it. The apostles have already said, the church has already decided this, but he doesn't. So we kind of put it there around A.D. 47, A.D. 48. I mentioned this already, the church in Galatia was being threatened by false teaching, Specifically, a false teaching called Judaizing or the Judaizers. And as you can tell, these were people coming into the church, claiming to be part of the church, maybe even claiming faith in Christ, but were saying, in addition to faith in Christ, you need to also adopt the old covenant dietary laws or circumcision or whatever it was. All those things were coming into play. And listen, they were being used as a test of salvation. They weren't just coming in and saying, you might try this, this is an interesting thing, these dietary laws or whatnot. They were saying, no, you need this in addition to faith in Christ to be a Christian and to be a child of the promise. The old covenant law, circumcision, what we might just call legalism, adherence to the law. So throughout the book of Galatians, we see that Jew-Gentile distinction being fronted as a basis for salvation. Some of the stuff we're dealing with in the book of Romans, though not as heavy, uh, the church at Galatia was dealing with this as an oppressive threat of false teaching, this Jew-Gentile distinction, and they were making it a means of salvation. Now, if you've been paying attention on Sunday morning, which I hope you have, we are justified by faith alone in the work of Christ alone, not any other external factors. And so the book of Galatians is dealing with that very threat. This is a threat to the gospel because Paul says they are threatening the very notion of justification itself. They might agree that Jesus lived. They might agree that Jesus died on the cross. They might agree that Jesus rose from the dead. They might agree that you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. But in adding all this stuff to the gospel and to the response of faith alone, Paul says this is a false gospel that must be dealt with. In light of that, some of the big themes in the book of Galatians are, number one, Paul confronts the error with the true gospel. And that true gospel is salvation in Christ alone through faith alone. 
Look with me at some of these passages leading up to our verse in question. Um, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, the introduction to this letter, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different, or turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Look over in chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Paul um, sort of acknowledging the, the Jew-Gentile controversy head on here. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Then over in chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then I want you to go back and look at verses 7 through 9 of Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So you see Paul from the very beginning confronting this false gospel of the Judaizers and then again and again and again pointing us to what? The big themes, justification through faith alone and Christ alone and what it means to be part of the promised people of God has nothing to do with nationality or laws or circumcision or dietary restrictions. It has to do with faith in Christ. And that's where Paul is pointing us and that, that is what brings us into Galatians chapter 3. Verse 28, there's neither slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female. All are one in Christ. So let's interpret that verse. What does he mean by there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. All are one in Christ. Well, number one, Paul is pointing us to the wrong response to the gospel. That if you have a wrong response to the gospel, you have a false gospel. Again, everything else might have sounded okay. Jesus, maybe even his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection. But then, let me clue you in on this extra stuff that you need to truly be part of the people of God. Let me tell you this extra step you can take to be really sanctified, to really be saved, to really know Jesus. And that takes us right to the verse we're looking at, Paul says, flat out, fleshly distinctions mean nothing. So if we're looking at verse 28, let's read some of the verses leading up to verse 28. Beginning in uh, chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, if you're hearing this through first century Jewish ears... This sounds so normal to us because we're Christians, this is what we believe. But through first century Jewish ears, 
to hear a Gentile called call, a Gentile called a son of God, and it's not through the law, and it's not through being a Jew, and it's not through circumcision. It is by faith in Christ. That would have been a shocking statement, and Paul intends it to be such. You are all the sons of God through faith in Jesus. Verse twenty-seven: For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How do you become a child of the covenant in the old covenant? You're born into the nation of Israel. You're circumcised if you're a male. That makes you a child of the covenant. Not so in the New Testament. When you're born again spiritually, you don't receive a physical sign of a spiritual birth. You receive a spiritual sign of a spiritual birth. And Paul says if you're in Christ by faith, the next logical step in that is not circumcision. It's baptism. And you have put on Christ through your faith and acknowledge that then in baptism. Then we come to verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Paul's point in this whole middle section of Galatians, all of Galatians chapter 3 really points us to this truth. We are children of promise by faith. We are children of promise by faith. He says you are all sons, not by the works of the law, not by your ethnicity, not by your nationality, not by your background, but there is one uniting factor that brings people into a relationship with God, and it is faith in Jesus Christ alone. You have put him on through faith and through baptism, so those fleshly distinctions are gone. They're not factored into the equation. God doesn't look at someone coming to faith in Christ and say, well, if you're a Jew, you're welcomed. If you're a Gentile, you need to be a Jew first. He doesn't say if you're a free man, you're welcome. But if you're a slave, you need to become free before you can come. He doesn't say men are welcome and women are not welcome. He says all of you are the children, the sons and daughters of God. Regardless of any external factors or fleshly distinctions, you're all in the family of God through faith in Christ. You are all heirs of the promise through faith in Christ. So if we can just boil the interpretation down to one sentence. We are brought into God's family through faith alone in Christ alone and not because of anything in us. Whether that's works, our race, our culture, our background, whatever we might throw in there, none of that brings us to God. Only faith in Christ brings us to God. So how do we apply this? How do we take a verse, there's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, we're all one in Christ. What is there here for us to interpret? And, and how do we apply it? What do we do with it now? That's what we understand it to mean. What now can we do with that that means anything to us? Well, faith alone is the only saving response to the gospel. If you come away from verse 28 with any other really interpretation or application but that your race and your background don't matter, only faith in Christ brings you to God, we're, we're venturing out into other territory then. This is the application. We, you and me, regardless of our race, ethnicity, background, or culture, economic status, political leanings, whatever it is, uh, gender, none of that is factored into those who come to God through faith in Christ. Only faith in Christ is the saving response to the gospel. 
But this also has to be said, and, and we're going to look at some other scriptures here. Emphasis here is not sameness, but diversity. The emphasis is diversity, not sameness. Paul is not suggesting that there's no such categories as male or female. He's not suggesting in that first century Roman world that there's no such thing as slaves. He's not suggesting that there's no differences between Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks, as he says. He acknowledges the differences. He understands the differences. He understands the hardship. Hence the whole need to write this in the first place. That these are issues of division that are coming into the church, especially between the Jew and the Gentile, that are being used as a way to prop this group up with superiority and put this group down as if they were inferior. And Paul says, no, that's not how the gospel works at all. So when we come to the issue of male and female then, how does that apply? Do gender roles not matter in the church? Do gender roles not matter in the home? Well, we know that's not true. You can, you can mark these verses down. I think they're on your handout. In 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, Paul acknowledges proper gender roles within the church. He encourages the men to pray with uplifted, holy hands. And then in an admittedly controversial passage, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Now, Paul is not arguing from some place of superiority or misogyny. He is not merely arguing as a first century Jew that's just a sexist. No, he roots his, creation, his argument in creation itself. That God created Adam to be provider, protector, and head, and he created Eve to be helper. And in that beautiful relationship, and that takes us to Ephesians 5, in that beautiful relationship between husband and wife, Paul says in Ephesians 5, that points us to Christ and his church, which is what the whole thing is about. He says marriage is about this, Christ the head of his bride, the church. And so we get that famous passage about wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Even as husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So if we just read even other writings of Paul, we see that Paul does see distinctions between male and female. He understands that there are different roles in the home, in the church. And so you can't just throw out Galatians 3.28 and say, well, there's neither male nor female as an argument for some LGBTQ issue or a transgender issue or for warping God's roles for men and women in the home and the church. You can't just throw that verse out there and say that. We put it in context we ask, what did Paul mean? What does Paul say elsewhere? And then we get the full picture all together. Moving forward without, uh, with application, let's boil it down to one paragraph here. All, without distinction, are welcomed into the family of God through faith in Christ. That's Paul's point. We have differences that affect roles and responsibilities, but not in terms of worth or standing with God. In other words, the different roles and responsibilities that he has placed on Christian men in the home, husbands, fathers, the different responsibilities that he's placed on men within the church, leading in terms of pastoral care and preaching and teaching, 
those things are not there because men are just better or even because men are smarter, as hard as it is for us to say. That is not why God says that. This is about order and creation and the family, Christ and his church, and the picture that we should model of that in our homes and in our churches. So we look at what Paul means by that. We know he doesn't mean there's no difference between male or female. We know that he does not mean there's no such thing as male or female, as our culture would say these days. He says, no, there is male and female, but in the body of Christ, regardless of those fleshly divisions, male, female, Jew, Greek, anything else, we are all welcomed into the family of God by one access point, and that is faith in Christ alone. All right, let's look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Probably one of the most famous evangelistic verses in all of Scripture. I would ask for a show of hands as to how many folks have heard this verse quoted at an invitation time, an altar call time, whatever you want to call it, a, a calling for a response of faith in Christ. Look at what um, the Lord Jesus actually says to the Apostle John. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So this is pretty easy. How is this verse often used? Most of the time when I've ever heard this verse used, it's been invitation, altar call time, asking someone to make a decision for Christ and to place their faith in him. And then the preacher would inevitably say, he's at the door knocking. Will you open the door of your heart and let him in? Okay. Not a sinful thing by any means. Uh, not a bad invitation line by any means. Uh, but not necessarily what this verse means or how it should be used. So let's do the, the starting point stuff again. Who's the author? John the Apostle. Same one who wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We have no reason to think otherwise. His audience, let's say the immediate audience in this particular verse, is one of the seven churches in Asia, the church in Laodicea, or the church at Laodicea. And the genre can be a little tricky because we're dealing with sort of two genres. One is epistle or letter, because the whole thing starts as seven letters to seven churches, and they all have these seven different introductions personally to them, followed by the rest of the prophetic book of Revelation, which we put in the genre called apocalyptic. Okay? Apocalyptic refers not just to the end times, though it encompasses that, but apocalyptic literature is symbolic. Lots of visions and symbols and signs. Think about the book of Daniel or the book of Ezekiel. Uh, the book of Revelation, with heavy on symbols and dreams and visions and signs, things that point beyond themselves to a bigger picture. That is apocalyptic literature. But here, really in this part, we're still dealing with what is basically a letter from John, from the Lord Jesus, to the church at Laodicea. Okay? Let's talk about the setting a little bit. Written by John to the La Laodiceans, A.D. 96. There is lots of disagreement about when the book of Revelation was written. Uh, most of it has to do with 
how someone wants to see um, the things in Revelation taking place, whether they're past, present, future, all future, part, past, whatever. That's a, not a discussion for tonight. Tonight we're just going to say most scholars agree the book of Revelation was written in the late 90s, probably A.D. 96. The church at Laodicea is one of seven other churches being addressed. Seven historical, real, physical churches to which Jesus informs the Apostle John to write these letters. And the setting in which they find themselves between about A.D. 62, the end of, of that first century, and on into the second century, is persecution. Persecution is a big one in the book of Revelation. We're dealing with the, the emperor of the Roman Empire and his persecution of Christians and trying to get them to turn away from Jesus as Lord and to worship his image. We're dealing with those big things, idolatry, false teaching that is sneaking into the church. The big themes then in Revelation, we can just read uh, Revelation chapter 1. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. What time is near? John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So the big themes in Revelation, you know this, the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The time is near. For what? For him to come back to earth. And in light of his coming back to earth, John is writing these seven letters by the direct command of Jesus through his angel to encourage these churches to persevere and to endure in the midst of the challenges they will face. Persecution, idolatry, false teaching, sin, temptation, and the rest. And included in these letters, uh, except for one, is discipline for errors. John, by the Lord Jesus, gives uh, compliment sandwiches. You're doing this right. You need to work on this. Blessing and peace. You know, you're still uh, uh, saved, but there's this warning there in the middle to watch out, repent, turn away from whatever this is, lest your candlestick be removed, lest that church be snuffed out. So there is a warning there. It's intended as a discipline, a warning to turn away from what you're doing and turn back to the Lord. Yeah, that's going to be important, so hang on to that. Let's then look at chapter 3, verse 20 again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This, this instruction given to the Laodicean Christians. Well, first of all, you remember before this comes this introduction of this, uh, this idea of being lukewarm. And so in 
Revelation 3, verse 15, I know your works to the church at Laodicea. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, this is, when I was growing up and I'd hear preachers quote this, it always didn't make a lot of sense to me because the, the, the interpretation seemed to be you either really, really love Jesus or you hate him. Right? You're either hot on fire for Jesus or you, you, you're not at all. You're cold. You're an unbeliever. And I always wonder why would God prefer that you, that those are really the only two options, right? And they always put the lukewarm as if they were somewhere in the middle. And that God would prefer you not believe at all than to be partly convinced that never made sense to me. Well, historically speaking, the church at Laodicea was close to two sources of water. One came in through the aqueducts and was from the hot springs near the mountains and came down to the church at Laodicea or the town of Laodicea. And by the time it got there, they weren't hot anymore. They weren't really good for anything. It was lukewarm. The other source of water was just a muddy, nasty, cold river. And so when you think about this picture that the Apostle John by the Lord Jesus is giving the, the Laodicean Christians, you see that contrast. Cold water in the ancient world was good for refreshment, for drinking. It was clean. The hot water was good for therapeutic use or for washing or for sanitizing. And so you see the picture, don't you? I'd rather you be hot water and be useful for those things or be like the cold water and be useful for those things. But instead, you're like that filthy spring from that side or the lukewarm water from that side and you're good for nothing. And so the picture is not just of being halfway for Jesus and halfway not or whatever the, the picture may be. The, the picture is really being useless for Jesus because you're not good for anything. And what made them not good for anything? Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So the lukewarmness of the Laodicean church was built in this fact that they were self-sufficient. They were wealthy. They had prospered. They had made a name for themselves. It was a wealthy town. They would not have considered themselves pitiable, poor, naked, blind wretches. But that's what Jesus calls them. Because this wealth that they had accrued for themselves and this prosperity that they relied on, this self-sufficiency they had because of those things became a problem for them. And they relied on those things more than they relied on Jesus. And so verse 18, Jesus reminds them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments, that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What is Jesus saying? Forget all the earthly riches. Verse 18, he says, Jesus, I am your first and only real need. Your lukewarmness, Laodicea, your uselessness for me is because you've become self-sufficient and arrogant and proud because of your wealth. Well, you need to realize your true need, which is none of those things. It's found in me alone, says the Lord to the church at Laodicea. And so he says to them, in order to be of use to God, as a hot spring or cold spring would be useful in order to be useful for God, for Christ, for the kingdom, he wants them to repent of their self-sufficiency 
and their apathy towards Jesus. In verse 19, we see this disciplinary streak here in these letters. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus confronts this in his love. And he says, because I love you, I discipline you. So in their apathy, in their ease and their comfort because of their earthly riches, in their lethargy for the things of God and the kingdom of God, their apathy had shut Jesus out, metaphorically. They, they were no longer relying upon Jesus for their needs. They were self-sufficient. They had it all together for themselves. Ease, comfort, money, wealth, notoriety, whatever it was. And who needs Jesus? Jesus stands ready to fill them. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. They need to realize their true need of Jesus and quit shutting him out and let him in. Let's boil this interpretation down to this. Jesus is ready to empower the church to face the challenges before them. Laodicean Christians, you're facing idolatry, you're facing false teaching, you're facing persecution, you're facing increasing paganism and pragmatism in your church because of the emperor worship and the Roman persecution. You're facing all those things, and you must first realize your need of Jesus and submit to him in love and obedience to be useful for him. As it is right now, you are neither hot nor cold. You're not a healthy cold spring or a healthy hot spring. You're lukewarm and you're good for nothing except making people sick. And so I'll spew you out of my mouth. You're not good for anything. Be useful for the kingdom. Realize your need of Christ and let him into your church. So what is there here for us? That's, that's for the Laodiceans. That's what John, by the Lord Jesus, intended for them to understand. What is there here for us? Well, it's a lot of the same stuff, really. First of all, evangelism is a secondary application. This isn't, this isn't primarily, primarily is a key word here. This isn't primarily a call for an unbeliever to make a decision for Jesus. Okay? It, there is an application that can go there. In other words, if, if the church needs to let Jesus in to empower and to strengthen the church, unbelievers, you really need to let Jesus in. So there, there's a secondary application there. You see that? But it's not the primary application because this is a letter written to a church, written to believers, not to unbelievers to let Jesus in and save them, but to believers to let Jesus in their church and change them. So it's a secondary application. The church of today just like the church then, faces challenges. Many of the same challenges. False teaching, idolatry, worldliness, temptation, sin, you name it. We face the same things. And apathy to the things of God, and apathy to church, and apathy to the Bible, and apathy towards Christ will not do. We, as a 21st century church, just as much as Laodicea, need the presence and the power of of Jesus. 
this church had become so self-sufficient, so apathetic, so comfortable that they had shut Jesus out and forgot about their need of him. And you can't help but look around at American Christianity in the 21st century and think maybe we're in the same predicament. That in our great wealth and our ease and our comfort, we have really breeded a sort of laziness toward the things of God and toward church and towards the scripture and towards the kingdom of God. But just as much as Jesus loved his bride then and disciplined the church and did not give up on the church, he stands ready and willing and able to come into our churches and to change us and to fill us with his presence and his power once again to be useful for him in the world. So we as a 21st century church We will be useless for the kingdom if we are content to remain in our apathy and self-sufficiency. We've got this. Our church has been around for 130 years. We're a well-old machine. We know how to do things. We've got the committees and the deacons and the pastors, and we pay well. We take care of them, and we, we have all these things going on. We have the activities and the VBS and all the stuff. We're good. We got it all going on. Maybe we've forgotten our need of Jesus. We must repent and submit to Jesus, letting him in to empower and fill us with himself. Jesus stands ready and willing to empower and strengthen and equip and to fill us if we will submit to him. This message for the church at Laodicea and for all the churches is also a message for us today. In verse 21 it says, uh, he who has an ear to hear what the spirit, verse 22, I'm sorry, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Written specifically, specifically to Laodicea, but with application for us today, let, this, let the ear hear what the spirit says to the churches. Repent of your apathy and your laziness for the kingdom. Repent of your lukewarmness because that's not good for anything. Let Jesus, by his power, fill you as you submit and confess your need of him. So we see in that instance what John intended for the church at Laodicea to hear, what the Lord Jesus, quoting almost verbatim to the apostle John, wanted them to hear, what the message was for them, Be useful for the kingdom. Let Jesus in again. You've shut him out by your self-sufficiency. We take that and we say, how do we apply that then to us in the 21st century? Our last scripture today is uh, Romans 8, 28. Favorite verse for so many and for good reason. We're going to talk about um, why that's the case and maybe come to a fuller understanding of, of Romans 8, 28. Romans 8:28 reads, "And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose." So I don't need to challenge you to think about ways that this verse is often used. Uh, when a friend or a loved one is going through something bad, uh, they're suffering trial, sickness, maybe without even taking into account whether that person is a believer or not. Or maybe we see something going on in the world or on the news and it's bad, it's bad news. And we think to ourselves or we say to that person, well, 
all things work out for the good. All things work out for the good. Quoting Romans 8.28, maybe not knowing it, but quoting Romans 8.28 and applying it to those various situations. Well, let's do a little bit of our, our research work again and see where we're going with this. The author of Romans, of course, is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Rome. And the genre, as was the church of uh, the letter to the Galatians, is epistle or a letter. Much of this will be back to our introduction to the book of Romans, so uh, it'll be a little repeat for those who've been here on Sunday morning. Paul is writing to the Roman church. Most scholars agree, writing from the city of Corinth sometime between the years AD 56 and AD 57. The book of Romans was written at least in part to deal with some of those same issues we saw in Galatia, that is, these differences between Jew and Gentile. In terms of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law, circumcision, justification, how do, we, how do we deal with that with Jewish believers and Gentile believers? How does all that work? Paul is at least in part dealing with those issues. But here in chapter 8, he's dealing specifically with the issue of suffering and how suffering fits into the promises of God. By chapter 8, we've already unpacked uh, all the big stuff and justification, peace with God, all that stuff. And now we're asking the question, but when bad times come, when suffering comes, how does that affect the promises of God? Does it affect the promises of God? Let's take some big picture views of the themes in Romans to this point. We've gone over a lot of this on Sunday morning already. Chapters 1 through 4 deal systematically with justification. In other words, how are we made right with God? How do sinners who are under the guilt, the guilty verdict and the condemnation and the wrath of God, how do those guilty sinners come into peace with God? How are we made right with God called justification? Chapters 5 through 8, we started chapter 5 Sunday, looking at how we have peace with God and access to his grace. We see the benefits of justification. So now that we have been brought into relationship with God through faith in Christ, what are the benefits of that? Peace with God, no condemnation, freedom in Christ, all those wonderful benefits of the gospel. Then specifically in chapter 8, verses 18 through 39, we ask this question, what does that look like in suffering? In the middle of trials and hardships and the worst imaginable circumstances, how do we still rely on the promises of God? How do we still know we have peace with God? How do we still know our justification is intact? How do we know that we're being made like Jesus? How do we know that God will bring us to heaven even in the midst of suffering and hardships and trials? That's the theme that brings us into chapter 8 or the latter part of chapter 8. So let's look at a little interpretation of this particular verse then. Suffering is part of this fallen world, part of life in this fallen world. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, as we're coming into that verse. Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Suffering is part of this present fallen world, but it is not the end. Paul says this present suffering does not compare to the future glory that is going to be revealed. 
And then he says down in chapter 8, verses 23 through 25, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but who, or for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says, suffering is here, but it is not the end. Glory is the end for those who are in Christ. And that is the promise that we long for. We wait for that promise along with all creation. You see, Paul's building that argument. There is suffering, but it's not the end. Glory is coming. We are waiting and longing for that glory to be revealed on the last day. Then we come to verse 28. All things work together for the good. We know, Paul says, we know all things work together. That God is at work in all things. And that he is working in all things, Paul says, verse 28, for our ultimate good. Now, two things to notice here straight off is that Paul is speaking to believers. Paul is speaking to believers. How do I know he's speaking to believers? Because he says, for those who love God and those who have been called according to the purpose of God. That's two very distinct characteristics of what it means to be a believer. You have come to love God where you were once his enemy. Through faith in Christ, you now love him. And you have been called of God. Remember back in chapter 1 of Romans, the very first sermon we preached, the call of God to belong to Jesus Christ. I have been called to belong to him. I have been called as a saint. I've been called a child of God. I love God now. This passage, this verse is intended only for believers. All things work together for the good of believers in Jesus Christ. And the promise Paul makes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is our good. And I wonder if we would ask, what is that good? Look at verse 29, putting it in context, right? The verses around it. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we put that together, and Paul says, even in the suffering, God is at work for your good. And then you might ask, well, what is my good? And Paul says in verse 29, it's to be made into the image of Jesus. That is your ultimate good as a believer. You're called to belong to him, and now God's purpose is to make you like him. Verse 30 has even more good news. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you hear that past tense language? Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and then as if you are already glorified. As if it were already a done deal. And then we come to the latter part of chapter 8, which many of us just love and for good reason. Let's start reading in verse 31 after we hear those things. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's where those wonderful promises come into play. Why? Because God is working all things, even the bad things, toward that ultimate end for you. To make you like Jesus. To bring you to Jesus in glorification. And all that stuff that Paul lists, all the suffering that he can even imagine, no suffering or trial is able to stop it. Nothing can halt God's predetermined will for his children. God will finish the work he started in believers. Suffering can't come in the way of God fulfilling his purpose and making them like Jesus. And all things, no matter good, bad, or indifferent, all things can only serve that purpose. So what is here for us? How do we apply this? That's the interpretation. How do we apply this? One, we live in the same fallen world. Just as much as those Roman Christians lived in a fallen world, we do too. And we live in the midst of suffering and trials and hardship. But in the midst of that suffering, we have the same promise that Paul wrote of to the Roman Christians. It's not a promise for them that doesn't apply to us. It had particular meaning for them in light of the trials they were going to face. But it also applies to us. We have the same promise. Namely, God is at work in all things for your good. And your good is being made into the image of Jesus. He is working to make you more like Jesus in the good times and the bad times. And the best news is that he will finish what he started. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1 verse 6, is faithful to complete that work to the day of Jesus Christ. He will do what he started to do. So if we could shorten that down to one paragraph, believers are not exempt from suffering, but God is working for your good. It may not mean a happy ending here and now. In other words, we can't just throw out Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good, as if that means my present circumstances are going to get better. We can say, you know, that the apostles could have quoted Romans 8, 28 all day long. They were still martyred. The early church could have quoted Romans 8, 28 all day long. All things work together for the good. They were still thrown to the lions and eaten and starved and all that, imprisoned, beaten, tortured, killed. But that promise went beyond those earthly, temporary circumstances. It will all be glory 
when we see Jesus because we will be like him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 makes that promise. When we see him, we will be like him. There's the completion of what Paul said. You are predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. When will it happen? When we see him. And that is your ultimate good that God has predestined you for as his children. And nothing can come in the way of that taking place. You will be made like Jesus. Theologians call this last middle part of Romans chapter 8 the golden chain of salvation because it shows us this great unbroken series of links that if you have been foreknown by God, you have been predestined by God. And if you've been predestined by God, you have been called by God. And if you've been called by God, you've been justified by God. And if you're justified through faith in Christ because of the call of God, it is as if you are already glorified. And how can Paul say that that's going to happen? That's a done deal, that past tense language. He says because it's like this unbroken chain that what God started, he will complete. And no amount of suffering or trials and hardships in between can tear you away from that love and that promise that God has made for you in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for the goodness and the sweetness of the gospel. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who confirms these promises in our souls tonight. I ask that you would, as we read and as we study, that you would help us to read in context, not to take away from Scripture, and not to diminish the sweetness of Scriptures that we know, but to add to their sweetness, to add to their goodness to see what you intended when you spoke by your spirit through the prophets and the apostles. And as we take those gems and that treasure hidden in your word, help us by your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives today. God, bless the reading and the teaching of your word tonight. Help it to bear fruit in our hearts even as we go from this place this evening. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.